If you have your Bible, open to, uh, to Matthew chapter 18. I always feel a little bit uh, intimidated the second service because all these guys have been here once already and they've heard this and it's like, okay, which, which one's better? I should. Get one of them. Holy Spirit, you're the one who leads us in truth. And so we open our hearts to you. Our confidence, our trust is in you, not in man. We don't put our trust in men. We don't put our trust in what men can do, but we put our trust in you. Have your way with us today in Jesus' name. Amen. The middle verse of the Bible says what I just prayed. You don't put our trust in man, but we put our trust in God. If you haven't figured that one out, now you've got to go home and figure out what's the middle verse, verse of the Bible. Let me give you a hint. It's in Psalm 118. Matthew 18. 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's a great uh, question. Um, but it carries some background to it because it's a question really of comparison, competition. Who's the greatest? Not are we all great, but am I, am I better than Josh? Everyone's shaking their head, no. But Jesus responds to the question with a whole teaching on new covenant kingdom relationships. And that's what the whole chapter, chapter 18 of Matthew is about, new covenant kingdom relationships. And so we're gonna talk about that this morning. He uses this opportunity. Why is it necessary? Because uh, a couple weeks ago, Fiona spoke about unity and the importance of unity and everyone finding their place. The biggest hindrance to unity is relation, relational issues. In fact, they say about missionaries, that 50% of all missionaries who go overseas return before their first term of service is completed, which might be three to four years, often spending six or eight years in preparation, and they go and they come back before the first term of service is completed. And of those who come back, 80% come back for the same reason. Not because they can't handle the culture or the language, but because they don't get along with the other missionaries. Uh-oh. So when Jesus talks about kingdom relationships, we probably need to pay attention. So he, in this chapter, he gives us four foundational points regarding new covenant kingdom relationships. They are humility, acceptance, honor, and forgiveness the whole chapter, but there's two others that are assumed but aren't, aren't actually spoken about there. And so I want to touch those real quickly before I get into uh, chapter 18. And the two that aren't spoken about are love and grace. Now grace is alluded to in verse 27 and 32. You'll see that when we get there. But love is the foundation. The one commandment of the new covenant that Jesus gave is that we love one another as he has loved us. 
And so those are the foundations. Then he comes and he addresses other things in laying a foundation of, of new covenant kingdom relationships. Verse two, Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, assuredly I say to you, unless you're converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven is the uh, Matthew equivalent of the kingdom of God. Uh, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He's actually setting the foundation, which is humility. Humility is the foundation for new covenant kingdom relationships, built on love and grace. And it basically is that we don't think more highly of ourselves or exalt ourselves, but we actually think of others. It reflects Jesus' heart in Philippians chapter 2. From verse 3, says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. That's the opposite of humility. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That's humility. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. That's love. Let this mind or attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery or something to be held on to, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." Jesus' hard attitude was one of humbling himself. Why is that important to understand? Because James 4, 6 tells us that God's opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's also picked up again in 1 Peter 5, 5, the same thing. God's opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. What we need to understand is that humility unlocks grace. Humility allows grace to flow. So why did Jesus, who was equal with God, did not consider something to be held on to, but emptied himself, become like a man, was born in a manger? Why? He wasn't because he came just to reach shepherds or, or lowly people. It was because by humbling himself, grace fluid was allowed to flow into the planet. The grace of God came. The foundation of new covenant kingdom relationships, the opposite of arrogance and self-exaltation. Back over in Matthew 18. Goes on, it says, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Talking about acceptance. Not only humility, but acceptance receiving those who are different. Look around, see anyone different than you? None of you looked around. <laughs> I waited till you look around. Tim said he was looking at me with my gray hair. See, it doesn't take long to realize that every one of us is different. If we don't have a heart 
to accept and receive those who are different, pretty soon we're going to be a little group all by ourselves, which might be easy, boring. And then he goes on and talking about our attitude toward those and picks it up again in verse 10. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now he's gone from acceptance to honor. Recognizing that not only are people are different, but everyone is valuable. Because that's what he says. Say to you in heaven, their angels always see the face of God who is in heaven. And what's he saying? Every single one is valuable. Every single little one, everyone who's different, everyone who's not like we are, everyone who we would consider beneath us or below us is valuable in God's sight. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We take that out of context all the time. It is about God's heart to reach those who, who are away from him and have no relationship, but it's a heart of restoration. Let me tell you this. Everyone is the one to God. Because he goes on and says, what do you think if a man had 100 sheep and one of them goes astray? Does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, surely, I say to you, he rejoices more over uh, that sheep than over the 99 that did not stray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. In the context, he's saying everyone is the one that he would leave the rest and pursue. You're the one that he would leave all the rest of us to pursue. Do you see others that way? Or do we tend to look down? And then he throws this need in here for restoration and unity. Verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, you tell him his fault between you and him, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, and if he hears you, you will have gained your brother. Guys, some of you in your Bible has a subtitle over this section that says church discipline. Scratch it out. It's not the Bible, and it's not what this is about. If yours says that, tear that page out. No. <laughs> Get a little bit. It actually says, if your brother sins against you, 20 out of 22 translations says sins against you. For some reason, two of them, one of them being the NIV, has dropped against you. It says, if your brother sins, go to him alone. Now, in light of everything we just read, if your brother sins against you, the whole concept is a restoration of relationship. But if you take the against you out and you say, if your brother sins, it changes it from a restoration of relationship to policing. I gotta see who's sinning. <laughs> oh no, Steve's got sin somewhere. I better go talk to him about it. Rather than Josh hit me with, in the side of the head with a stick. On purpose. <laughs> On purpose. We, need, we need to go be restored in relationship. Do you see the difference?
Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you will have gained your brother. Which means your relationship is restored. Again, the NIV changes that to we'll have won him over. So it puts it in this confrontational status that I'm looking out for someone's sin and then I go talk to him about it and I win him over. I get him on my side. I'm keeping purity. That's not our responsibility. That's the Holy Spirit's responsibility. You understand this. There is not a job opening in the Trinity. God's not looking for someone to fill, fill in for the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's not on vacation. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin. It's not us. Yet how often do we think, if we read this wrong, that we have to be the Holy Spirit? I've got to look out for everyone else's sin. And that's what Jesus was referring to when he says, you look at the, the sliver in your brother's eye, but you miss the log in your own eye. Go to him alone. There's a background in the Bible, a bigger picture that this fits into that we often don't see. Proverbs 10, 12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Proverbs 17, 9, he who covers the transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. 1 Peter 4, 8, and above all these have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. The background is protecting and covering one another, not exposing. And so when Jesus says, go to your brother alone, if Josh hits me up the side of the head with a two by four, then the responsibility is to go talk to him. If I tell someone else, if I have this idea of a court case and I tell someone else, then two things happen. One, I'm now guilty of gossip, because that's all it is. And two, if I tell Johan, I put him in a tough place. Because if Johan agrees with me, then he takes on a secondhand offense against Josh. What Josh did was wrong. And that's what I'm, why I'm telling Johan, because he's got a side with me, it was wrong. And I've got the stitches to, sh- to prove it. But the problem is, he takes on an offense that he can't get fixed. Because Josh didn't sin against him. <laughs> so it goes on and says, but if he will not hear, take one or two more, and then it quotes this Old Testament that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Take one or two more. Something is established by two or three witnesses. What's being established? Most of us think what's being established, because we think in, in terms of some sort of court case, what's being established is their guilt and my righteousness, that, that Josh is wrong, and so that's being established. So I'm going to take Johan and Fiona with me, and they're going to come, and, and they're going to establish 
No, how could they establish something that's already passed? What they're establishing is my heart attitude of humility, acceptance, and honor to see our relationship restored. Think about that. Take one or two with you. Not to be the judge and jury in a court case. Look what Josh did. Look what, look what my righteous attitude. Now you've got to side with me and not, again, and not Josh. That's not it at all. Let them see my heart is restoration. We've got this so wrong in that we've taken it out of context and we've talked about church discipline. I don't know how many people get smashed when we think of church discipline. We're gonna try and get people to live up to our expectations. First, we're out looking to see if they have sin. Oh no, there's something in Mary. Then we're taking other people with us to prove that. And then it goes on and says this. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Why? Because the church is now the jury? No. So the church sees your heart for reconciliation and restoration. And if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you a heathen and a tax collector. We have got this so wrong. This is not about excommunication. That was something that the Catholic Church used. They believed that they had the, the uh, body and the blood of Jesus, the, the bread and the wine became the body and blood, and if you took that, you actually got saved. You needed to take the real one, and they were the only ones who had it. And if they excommunicated you, you could not be saved because you couldn't take communion, and neither could anyone do business with you. It gave them incredible control over people. If you don't do what we say, we will kick you out. And that's not what this is about at all. It's about how do we get restored? How do you treat a heathen and a tax collector? How did Jesus treat them? He loved them. He went and had lunch with them and blew all the religious people away. This is not about kicking someone out. This is about maybe saying, hey, they need more prayer. Maybe I'm not going to give them a leadership position or ask them for counsel when I'm facing a difficulty, but it's not about kicking them out. And then he goes on and he talks about the importance of unity. Surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. And I, again I say to you that if two or of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. What's it about? It's about the importance of unity. Something happens when we are in that wonderful relationship. New covenant, kingdom relationship. There's something of a multiplying factor. This is not talking about a certain type of discipline and if we do it right, we bind them in the spirit realm. 
It's not what it's about. It's about the importance. Do you understand what happens when two or three will agree and pray? When we come together, Jesus is letting us know, and then it goes on. And Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. Up to seven times. And and Jesus said to him, I say to you, uh, I do not say to you seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And he tells a story. There's a kingdom, and there's this guy who owes this huge debt. And he comes to the king, and he says, I can't pay it. If you'll give me time. And the king totally dismisses all his debt. That's you. That's me. We have a debt of sin we could not even begin to pay. And Jesus paid it all. And then this guy, having been forgiven this huge debt, he goes and he finds Josh, who owes him $5. You've sitting in the wrong place today, Josh. (laughs) And he says, give me my $5. And Josh said, give me some time. He said, no. So I have Josh and I throw him in jail. How's he going to get money in jail? That's so stupid. (laughs) But what happens is that all the other uh, servants find out. They go tell the the master. The master calls me in and says, I forgave you that huge debt. Should you not also have forgiven Josh? He's talking about a hard attitude and willingness to forgive. See, here's the key. You haven't figured this out. When you turned and looked at everyone, found no one like you, everyone's different. What you also found is that no one's perfect. What does that mean? That means we have a lot of opportunities to forgive. If you're trying to find a church where everyone's perfect and you never have to forgive anyone, you're in the wrong place. This isn't that church. I don't know which one is, but I can tell you this one isn't. So a hard attitude. See what happens with unforgiveness is that they're both imprisoned. They're both in bondage. At the end of the story, the guy who owed the little debt got thrown in jail and the guy who was forgiven the great debt but still didn't forgive, he's also in jail. When the story ends, they're both still in prison. Unforgiveness puts us in bondage. But let me tell you, there's two things of forgiveness in the Bible. And here's where where I've got to talk quickly. But there's two things. There is a forgiveness that is a releasing of someone And then there is a forgiveness that is associated with repentance when someone has done something that then is a restoring of relationship. Turn with me to Luke 17. Verse 3, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. There is something of a restoring of relationship that requires repentance. 
I'll talk about that in a second. There's also something of releasing people, which actually releases you from hurt. That doesn't mean that you condone it. It doesn't mean that you trust it. It just means, okay, I'm not going to allow that to affect me into the future. But that doesn't mean that I trust him. Okay, here's the other one. Let's say every time I see Josh, he hits me upside the head with a two-by-four. And I go to church and they say, you've got to forgive Josh. And then we add something. We say, you've got to forgive and forget. You know that's not in the Bible. If he hits me enough, I forget everything. (laughs) But we say, you've got to forgive and forget, which says to us that forgiveness means I've got to put myself back in that position. And so I forgive and I go see Josh and the next day he hits me upside the head with a two by four kid. And I go to church and someone says, you've got to forgive and forget. And I go see Josh and he hits me upside the head with a two by four kid. You're getting the story here. There's a difference If Josh hits me upside the head and says, Russ, what I did was wrong, I repent. Will you forgive me? Then I can forgive him and we can be restored in relationship. If he doesn't repent and I keep going back in that situation, I'm just stupid. I'm telling you, I'm just dumb. Yet that's often how we, if we don't understand the two different things of forgiveness, that's the message that we give to people. You've been in an abusive relationship. You've got to forgive, forget, pretend like nothing happened, and go back into that abusive relationship. It's just stupid. Without repentance, there is no restoration of relationship. Let me tell you, without repentance, there's no restoration of relationship with God. He doesn't just pretend sin doesn't happen. Jesus paid the penalty, but we still have to turn from our rebellion and turn to him. He doesn't just say, your rebellion's okay, just keep rebelling. That's fine. That's okay, Josh, just keep hitting me with that two by four. What does that mean for us? First and foremost, we can never forget the grace and the love of God that redeemed us. We deserve hell. I don't care what you've been taught, I wanna tell you the truth, you deserve hell. Your rebellion against the king of the universe deserves that you be separated from him, but he pursued you. In his love and his grace that you can earn, that you can, can never uh, deserve, he redeemed you. And if we ever forget that, we lose the basic heart attitude of new covenant relationships. Steve is redeemed by the grace of God, just like I am. I didn't become good. I became righteous. I'm being transformed 
to be like Jesus, as are all of us, but we're all at different places on that journey. So we're going to have plenty of opportunities to forgive. Don't forget the incredible grace and love of God. And let's keep our relationships clear. There's something of God's purpose and plan in seeing his kingdom advance that requires us to be in relationship together. I'm going to ask you to bow your head. I can't finish this without just touching on this because maybe you have been the one who's been hurt. Maybe you've been hit upside the head with a two by four. Maybe you've been abused. Someone sinned against you. There is a forgiveness that sets you free from that affecting you in the future. There's a forgiveness that allows God's healing to come in you. I'm not talking about forgiveness and repentance that is restoring a relationship. I'm talking about something that allows freedom to come to you. And if that's where you are this morning, the wonderful news is that God's grace is sufficient. He's got enough to allow you to release that and it not affect you. Now that's not pretending it didn't happen. That's not forgetting about something. That's not putting a blindfold and say, I pretend like that never took place. It's actually allowing God to bring healing so that that doesn't affect you into the future. There is no going back and changing the past. There's only changing how that affects you from here forward. Forgiveness is releasing them to God, to his judgment, to his way of dealing with things, not ours. Can I say it this way? Let me be very practical from this standpoint. Repentance is not saying I'm sorry if you got offended. That makes me so angry when I hear politicians say that. I'm sorry if you got offended. In in essence, it's your fault. Repentance is God showed me that what I did was wrong. And by his grace, I will never do that again. It's not Josh saying, I'm sorry, Russ, if you got offended that I hit you in the head with that two by four. No, it's saying, hey, God showed me that that was wrong. 
And then forgiveness is not just saying, hey, it's okay. Forgiveness is actually, there's something released when you say, I forgive you. Now, why am I saying this? Because many marriages, many, much, many relationships, there's no actual repenting and forgiving. I was raised in a family. We'd have a fight or an argument, and we would ignore each other for two or three hours and then pretend like nothing had ever happened. The silent treatment. But there's no repentance then. There's no forgiveness. So what happens is, is it leaves a little rock in the, the, between the relationship. You go long enough with that, and that rock becomes a whole wall. And husbands and wives get to a place where they're totally separate and they say, how did we get here? I'm telling you how you got there. One rock at a time. One lack of repentance, one lack of forgiveness. So in relationship, repentance is what I did was wrong, will you forgive me? And forgiveness is not, no, it's okay. Because it's not okay. You can't condone sin when the Holy Spirit convicts someone of sin. You can't say that's no big deal. It is a big deal. What you can do is forgive. You don't say it's okay. You say, I forgive you. And in those two things, relationship is restored to something supernatural. I'm passionate about this, obviously. Because there's so many broken relationships because we haven't learned the very simple foundation of new covenant kingdom relationships. Well, let me tell you, it all starts with coming into relationship with Jesus. If you don't know him, you ha if you haven't been restored, that's the, the important part. That's where it all begins. That's where you find the grace to live his way, not the world's way. In knowing him. If you don't know him, we'd love to introduce you to him this morning. Can I ask you to stand? Lord, we just acknowledge our dependence on your grace. We don't have the ability to live according to your kingdom without your grace. We just can't do it. Just how we could not earn our salvation, we can't have enough ability to make things right. And so we just ask for your grace. Lord, where there's been hurt, would you bring healing right now by your spirit? Where there's been broken relationships, will you bring restoration? But Lord, more than anything, will you remind us, and don't ever let us forget, that you paid our debt. We received grace, undeserved, unmerited, and therefore we approach every relationship from that same place of grace. People don't have to live up to our expectation. We're not the police. You are.
I pour your grace upon us, not only for this morning, but for this week, as we carry your love to a world that has no clue. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you'd like someone to pray with you, there'd be some folks who'd love to do that. If you haven't met Jesus, we'd love to introduce you to him. Otherwise, have a great week full of the grace of God. And uh, let's make sure our relationships stay in good, good nick. Bless you. Well, have a great day.